Good afternoon and welcome to Hudson Institute and the uh, Betsy and Walter Stern Policy Center here at Hudson. Uh, my name is John Walters. I'm Chief Operating Officer and uh, it's my great pleasure today to uh, introduce our speaker. Uh, I was once told that the great uh, tradition of transnational bankers goes back to the Middle Ages uh, and uh, um, uh, more near to our hearts, I guess, especially during this season, I guess the great, one of the great models that Americans, for better and worse, have for bankers are George Bailey and uh, Mr. Potter. Uh, uh, but what those examples do remind us is how important uh, banking and finance is to the future of our lives and the future of the world. Uh, unfortunately, these most powerful forces are, for many of us, uh, somewhat fearful mysteries. Uh, they, they operate and they, um, and they surprise us in ways that are, um, uh, are of concern and we are reminded of that all the time. They also present great opportunities. And uh, today we're, we have a great opportunity to learn from uh, someone who knows the world of global finance here and abroad. Uh, and to reduce our ignorance, uh, but maybe not our fear, depending on what he says here today. Uh, William Rhodes' book, uh, Banker to the World, is uh, um, uh, a terrific uh, introduction to uh, some of the topics that he will touch on and many that he will not have time to today. Uh, we have this book uh, available for purchase, and he's generously agreed to sign some copies afterwards. But it indicates in great, in some detail, um, that he's not just a banker in the highest sense of the profession, uh, providing critical resources and counsel to realize the blessings of human enterprise, but he's also a practitioner of banking on a global scale and of international financial diplomacy, a way of making nations and peoples able to live better lives and find ways of cooperating together and, and that's beneficial to all of us. The book details in the 1980s and 1990s uh, his leadership in resolving some of the debt crises of developing countries, and uh, it uh, uh, documents how he became and remains a uh, key advisor to governments around the world, financial officials, and organizations uh, throughout the uh, global community. Bill is retired senior vice chair of Citigroup and Citibank. He's president and CEO of William R. Rhodes Global Advisors. He's a professor at large for Brown University. He also serves, as you would expect, on, as a director of numerous for-profit and non-profit organizations across the globe. Today, Mr. Rolls will discuss some of the most urgent uh, risks facing the global financial system and those that are threatening economic growth. We are very grateful for this opportunity to learn from Bill Rhodes. So please join me in welcoming him. Thank you very much, John. Uh, Elaine Chow was a person who suggested that uh, uh, I come down to the Hudson Institute. Unfortunately, I guess she's at a board meeting uh, <clears throat> at this point and couldn't, uh, couldn't be here. But I thank so many of you who are old friends of mine who, uh, from Washington who've, who've come to, to hear me speak. I appreciate it very, very much. And uh, I've got my daughter here in the audience, and it's always good to come to Washington to see, to see her. <clears throat> I think it's fair to say the world faces a wide range of serious economic challenges today. Unresolved, they may create further threats to the Western political systems and to the structure of international trade and investment. Permit me to, to give a sort of wide-ranging introductory remarks about global economic and financial trends, talk about international trade, and finally, talk about banking, conduct, and culture, which is a subject uh, near and dear to my heart. Uh, <clears throat> many of the problems we now face are due to the slow economic growth since the world economy emerged from the Great Recession. And these problems reflect, I think, the repeated failures of political leadership in many cases in the leading industrial developed economies. No greater challenge is greater now than seeing the leaders come together to cooperate, forge new understandings that are geared not only to preventing <clears throat> worrying current trends to continue, but provide positive leadership that a globalized world is looking for and needs. Rarely before has the word risk been so appropriate in discussing the many facets of economics and finance as it is today. I think it's fair to say that we live in an age of uncertainty. 
The serious tasks on the economic front unfolding uh, are against a background of political turbulence in many parts of the world, and I would say including in the United States with this election for president, the like of which I can't remember in all my years, and I'm sure you can't either. <clears throat> what I like to call a, a middle-class revolt syndrome is evident, I think, in an increasing way uh, in the developed industrialized world, including the United States. It is driven in part by a perception of rising income inequality. The deep disenchantment of so many people in so many developed countries with their economic condition and prospect has opened the door to a combination of populism, nationalism, and protectionism. These powerful considerations currently manifest themselves, I think most particularly today, with regard to immigration and free and fair trade. Donald Trump has sought to take advantage of this middle-class revolt syndrome, but too, also we've seen this uh, done uh, by prominent politicians from both the far right and the far left in Spain, Greece, Hungary, Poland, France, Germany, I could go on as some of the examples. Certainly the Brexit decision was driven in large part by immigration concerns. The fear of immigration from the Middle East and Africa is adding fuel to populist and national uh, fires, particularly so in Europe and to even, uh, as you saw, uh, some of the, the, the go around in this political campaign for president. One cause of this middle-class revolt syndrome is the Great Recession of 2008 and 2009. I had warned in several pieces I had done in the Wall Street Journal and the Financial Times and going back to 06 and 07 that I was very concerned about what I saw in the subprime and what it might do. And certainly the events of 2008 and 9 were a hammer blow to economic stability, particularly in the Western world, but I would say globally. Its origins, I think, were deep and the consequences were profound and we're still living with them. One of these consequences for the leading industrial countries of Western Europe as well as the United States had been, and in certain countries still is, a high level of unemployment. Over recent years, uh, countries and economies like the U.S. have done much better than others in job creation. But of a grave concern, however, is a persistent high levels of unemployment, particularly youth unemployment in Southern Europe and even, <clears throat> uh, even in France. Millions of young people have been unemployed since the Great Recession, and a generation is growing up in many of these countries, never ha having known anything uh, to do with being able to get a regular job. And many of the jobs that they take on are low paying, and job insecurity is very, very high. This, of course, feeds the fires of nationalism, populism, and protectionism, from both the extreme right and extreme left, uh, which we see most prominently in so many European countries today. And then we've seen the development of a culture that has encouraged ever larger risks in financial markets. The intense search for yield, reach for yield in a world where inflation is low and where central banks have created extraordinary amounts of liquidity are stimulating today's high-risk behavior. <clears throat> Central banks, in order to get us out of the Great Recession, have created masses of liquidity and pushed interest rates very low, and in places uh, like Japan uh, and uh, Europe and the ECB, to actual negative rates to boost growth. <clears throat> I think it's fair to say, and I'm looking at Stan Fisher here, that too much uh, <clears throat> of the impetus to get us back to growth has fallen on the shoulders of central banks not only at the Fed, but also the European Central Bank, the Bank of Japan, and even the People's Bank of China. What we haven't seen is the proper fiscal policies and structural adjustment reforms that we should have seen, and which are absolutely necessary to get us out of this low-growth syndrome. <clears throat> the formal valuation gains we've seen in equity markets, whether it be real estate, uh, even things like uh, <clears throat> the situation in the art markets, uh, the stock markets, all at record levels. And I think one has to be looking at that and say, is this really tied to any uh, fundamental economic development? And, and my answer is not. These asset values are, are, are soaring, while world trade, which has been so important to us, uh, is now stagnating. And uh, this year, and I'll say more about this later, 
Uh, we're down to a level of world trade of uh, 1.7%. Of course, that's been the big driver since World War II uh, of, the, of the world economies. <clears throat> I think that at some point in time, we're going to have to face a reckoning and fundamentals will assert themselves, which means I think we're going to face a serious adjustment in the next year, 18 months or so in many of the countries that I'm talking about, unless we take, make some changes and things may be too far along even for that. <clears throat> now moving to a broad review, after that broad review, let me turn specifically to four countries or four areas that really dominate the world economy, the United States, China, Western Europe, and Japan. There's old, an old tradition here in, in Washington that the International Monetary Fund always has very optimistic scenarios on growth. <clears throat> and I think we're seeing that again vis-a-vis -vis what they projected for growth over the last couple of years. The latest one is they've dropped it to 3.1 for the world and saying optimistically it'll be 3.4% uh, next year. I think those are, uh, frankly, for next year are way too high. The OECD in Paris uh, forecasts only 2.9% this year and is not looking for much better. <clears throat> next year. But there are five, I think there are five good reasons to be cautious going forward. And let me just mention them. First, <clears throat> with the U.S. economy, a, a, a number of well-known economists, notably Larry Summers, have for some time been describing our economic condition as one of secular stagnation. Growth is low, savings are relatively high, investment is weak, and consumer spending is below what is needed. I expect GDP is likely to come in about 2% this year, which is approximately the average that we've seen in most of the years since the Great Recession, as against coming out of former uh, recessions where we were somewhere between 3 and 5%. <clears throat> On the Federal Reserve, we've seen uh, years of quantitative easing and very low interest rates. And in order to, to push the economy, because we haven't seen on the fiscal side, the balance sheet has gone from $800 billion to four and a half uh, trillion. And one has to ask, uh, if we get into another crisis, uh, what, it, what tools are left in the, in the toolbox? Uh, and there are a lot of arguments one way or the other there. Uh, my own feeling, and again, I look at Stan here, <clears throat> is that I think they'll raise interest rates in, uh, uh, in December, and then we'll have to see how things go in uh, 2017. Not very clear. I think for our economy to move out of its low growth path, we need to see action by the White House, Congress, and the private sector, uh, and that includes the financial sector. What we need to do is unlock the large savings that many Americans have felt bound to establish because their confidence is not where it should be. And I think the real, one of my real questions is how are we going to come out of this bruising presidential election? Are we going to come out with a type of confidence uh, not only in, uh, with the consumer, but also with, uh, with the private sector to invest, which we have not seen enough of. And I think as long as the American consumer remains hesitant about spending, and business has certainly been hesitant to spend, uh, and when we see world trade where it is, uh, I'm not too optimistic about growth going forward. We obviously need Congress to enact tax reforms that encourage business investment, also to promote meaningful infrastructure investments. We also need them, I think, to, to recognize that uh, fair and, and, and uh, trade and, and free trade is something that still has to be worked on. We also need uh, sensible regulatory reforms in a range of sectors to streamline overly complicated regulation, which will enable firms, to, I think, to operate with greater flexibility and lower compliance costs. Uh, the answer to everything is to pile on more uh, compliance, and I think the idea is there, there's good regulation and then there's regulation which doesn't help at all to incentivate investment. <clears throat> After this troubling election season, I worried that, that 2017 will again see a gridlock Congress and uh, will block many of these things which are so needed for our country to move forward. Hopefully, uh, I'm too much of a pessimist on that and hopefully things will work out and some of these things that have been stalled for so long will get its way through, particularly with tax reform, uh, infrastructure spending, uh, and also regulation. 
uh, and looking at, at, at the whole area of regulation and compliance. Second, I would like to just talk about China, which, as we all know, is the world's second largest economy, whose economic machine drove a commodity boom for many years that was crucial to the economic growth prospects of so many emerging market countries. For two decades now or more, China had uh, double-digit growth. Now the growth rate has slowed over the last couple of years, and frankly, I'm skeptical about the figures I see of three quarters in a row of 6.7%. That just fits nicely in the estimate of the Chinese leadership that we're going to go somewhere between 65 and 7%, and one really has to question that. Some of you will remember that in November 2013, one year after he took control of China and the Communist Party, President Xi Jinping addressed the party's central committee and announced a vision of a China dream or a great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. This envisioned substantial economic advances right through 2020, uh, which, if you will remember, is the centennial year of the Communist Party's founding. Unfortunately, much of this dream is presently on hold uh, for the moment. And the reason it is, is that we're seeing a change in the political <clears throat> scenario in, in China, where the, uh, Xi Jinping is rapidly consult, uh, consolidating power within the party. Uh, he already uh, has taken control of the military, which in past has been split uh, for the outgoing president to the incoming one. And I think that... Um, Economic policy is being forced to take a back seat to these political developments. However, there are real problems there that need to be resolved. One of them is the scale of China's debt-to-GDP ratio of over 280%. And very importantly here, it's not just the total size, but it continues to grow. Uh, the estimate, and it's, it's very always very difficult to, to pin these down, is that having reached almost $4 trillion dollars in reserves 18 months ago, they've lost about a trillion. And in some cases, there's a feeling there's, there's almost uh, informal exchange controls with some of the banks about how much people can take out. But if they move ahead, which they say they are, with taking the RMB to full convertibility, I think you could see more funds moving out. Very concerning is that the fast state-owned enterprises, the SOEs, in steel, coal, shipbuilding, and other sectors continue to swallow up funding like it's going out of style. And the housing boom has been in an unsustainable bubble for quite some time. Municipal governments continue to borrow heavily, and non-performing loans uh, many feel are piling up in the banking system, either directly with the banks or through the shadow banking system. And one of the things that uh, was promised uh, two or three years ago, was the closing down of the so-called zombie companies. And I would say that uh, when Zhu Renji was premier uh, 20 years ago, he was the first one to take a stab at that. And uh, uh, since then, nothing's really been done in that area. And uh, I think this is a real, a real problem for China, which is why you have gluts in things like steel, shipbuilding, etc. One of the signs of, of the government trying to grapple with this is to put in, a pro, put in a process, which I worked on some 25, 30 years ago, uh, to take non-performing loans and to, to, uh, to convert them into equity in, in, in the banking system, known as debt for equity swaps. I think when they get to be talking about that, then you know that they're really concerned and they're in trouble. Because in most of the countries that this was tried, <clears throat> it didn't work very well. It raised corruption, and, uh, and frankly, what should be done is the loan should just be written off. And so that, I think, is also uh, something that just is announced formally over the last week or two, and I think it's of, of concern. I think everything is being delayed here now until the 19th Party Congress in the fall of 2017. The formal date has not been given because five of the seven members of the Standing Committee, uh, which was the old Politburo, uh, are being appointed at that time. In other words, everyone except President Xi Jinping and Premier Li Keqiang will be reappointed, will be appointed or reappointed, but they all have reached the age of, uh, of retiring. And so one of the questions is, will any of them be reappointed? And one of those who, who's running the corruption campaign, anti-corruption campaign, Wan Shishan is, is going to be a test case as to whether, because he's very close to the president, whether he stays or he doesn't go. 
But my concern and the concern of so many is that a lot of the basic decisions needed that I have just mentioned here are being, on the economic side, are being put off until that party Congress uh, to consolidate political power. With most commodity prices soft and still oil prices as an example and, and other commodities, I think the emerging market countries as a whole, the major ones with the exception of India, have not been doing too well. As a matter of fact, we still have uh, recessions continuing in Russia, Brazil, <clears throat> South Africa is not doing very well, Mexico is heavily dependent obviously on us here and NAFTA, and we know uh, also that, that South Korea is heavily dependent on international trade and the fall in trade is impacting their GDP. Uh, I'd be happy to answer any questions rather than go into countries because we don't have the time, uh, you know, in question and answer. Third is Japan. We all remember, you know, Abe's three arrows. And he and Central Bank had Kuroda have doing everything possible to get the country out of 20 years of stagnation. Uh, and they announced, Abe did a plan for uh, the three arrows, uh, growth, uh, on the, the growth side, fiscal, monetary and structural reform. We've seen substantial quantitative easing out of the Bank of Japan, even now negative interest rates, fixing rates, and unfortunately uh, it doesn't seem to be working very well. Fiscal policy has been in insufficient. As I mentioned, so often countries are relying too much on the central banks and the fiscal side are not doing their part of it. Uh, what concerns me there most is the third arrow, which is a key to success of the Abbey plan, which is uh, <clears throat> structural reform and deregulation. And we have not seen much of that. And TPP, which I'm going to mention afterwards, is one example of where Japan needs to, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, needs to move ahead on structural reform. But unless uh, Japan uh, can move on deregulation, uh, because people talk about structural reforms, and, and that's in the eye of the beholder. What is a structural reform? Deregulation is really key in, in Japan, perhaps more than anywhere else. And you need to strengthen entrepreneurship. One of the things that has to be done is to open up uh, the economy more to the role of women. Since they don't want immigration and their birth rate is so low, it's very important that women be given a bigger role uh, <clears throat> throughout the economy in, uh, in Japan. Uh, the IMF, which is usually the optimist, as I said earlier, is pretty negative on where it sees Japan going over this year and next year with 0.5% growth. I hope they're wrong, but up to now there have not been many signs there. And we have to remember that Japan's the world's uh, third largest economy. And then we go to Western Europe. And I think Britain and the European Union will tussle with Brexit. And I think at the end of the day, this is bound to in, in, uh, affect investment levels and economic growth. Uh, the continent is struggling to find equitable and, uh, policies uh, to the inflows of people from the Middle East, Afri uh, Afghanistan, and Africa. I like to say that Angela Merkel opened Pandora's box, and they really have not been able to close it. And these policy issues could be something that could actually, it's, it's already hurt, hurting the cohesion of, of uh, the EU and to a certain extent the, uh, the Eurozone. And unless they can work this out, uh, I think this could really be very negative on the future ability of uh, both the EU and the Eurozone to solve the problems uh, that they have. Uh, you're having splits between the East and West uh, there, uh, Eastern Europe and, and uh, Southern Europe and uh, the so-called core base of, uh, of the Eurozone. Moreover, I think that economic policy leadership in the, uh, ninth, in the 19 member Eurozone should emphasize growth more than austerity. And I've seen, we've seen too much austerity, uh, I think, being programmed and sold and not enough on what you're going to do about growth, notably in youth unemployment. Um, and I think this is not just a problem for Southern Europe, it's also a problem uh, for a country like, uh, like France. Um, I think the European Central Bank under Mario Draghi has done the maximum possible under difficult circumstances to add liquidity and to also oversee the stress tests of the banking, uh, of the banks in the Eurozone. 
We read so much today about the Deutsche Bank and the problems that, uh, that they are having in other European banks. And one of the frustrations I know of, of Mario Draghi is he, he can't get a full implementation of the banking union, which is supposed to take care of the regulatory side, the resolution side, when banks get into trouble, and a deposit insurance scheme somewhat like we have here uh, with the FDIC. Uh, and the only thing he's been able to really do is <clears throat> on the regulatory side. And there's no doubt that uh, he, that makes a difference. And you have to understand that the banks are more important in Europe than they are in the United States. Depending on what statistics you look at, there's somewhat, the banks provide somewhere between 70 and 75% of all credit uh, in the Eurozone. In the United States, it's a, you have the mirror image. In other words, our capital markets are so uh, active that banks probably uh, only supply around 30%. The European Banking Authority, which was the senior regulator before uh, the first part of the banking union and, and, and the European Central Bank took over, unlike the Fed, uh, and I give a lot of credit to the Fed because they insisted that the major banks in the United States raise capital, write off bad loans, and restructure themselves, uh, getting rid of businesses uh, that really uh, were, not earning, uh, were not earning money. And this was not done in Europe. Uh, and we, I think the process with the Fed started very much in some of the other regulators here in 2009, and I think uh, the banks have made, in general, very good progress in this regard. This is not the case in many parts of Europe, and so I think this is a case where the Fed obviously did its job, is doing its job, and uh, when we look at cases in Europe, look at the banking situation in Italy. They can't figure out what resolution problem they want. There are problems in Portugal. Uh, not to speak of uh, not to speak of Greece, so I think that what needs to be done is to finalize the banking union, finalize uh, a, an acceptable resolution process that applies to everyone, and put in a deposit insurance scheme similar to the FDIC. They have deposit schemes country by country, and what you always have happen here is the battles that go on with the Commission in Brussels, which was another reason for Brexit. Uh, and uh, so you're looking at the ECB as being the motor, really, of growth uh, in the Eurozone. I mentioned Italy, but you have big problems in Portugal and, and as I said, uh, Greece. Talking about Greece, uh, every time Greece looks to be resolved, we have another problem. There was already one haircut taken by the private sector but the uh, debt to uh, GDP is still 175% and rising. And uh, having spent a week, uh, a couple of months ago in Greece, without, I think, new debt relief, Greece could fall back into a serious problem uh, for the Eurozone. My fifth point is trade. And again, I think this is, there's been a serious lack of international leadership in this area. And without uh, an increase in trade, I think the world economy is going to be in trouble going forward. And let me just take a quick quote from The Economist of a couple of weeks ago, which I think clears it up and explains it very well. Global trade is in a grim state. Between 1985 and 2007, trade volumes shot up at around twice the rate of global GDP. Since 2012, the rate of growth has barely kept pace. Things appear to be getting worse. Uh, the forecast of the World Trade Organization on the 27th of September slashed its forecast for growth in trade uh, and goods from 2008% in 2016 to just 1.7%, which I mentioned before. And this is, this is a key that really hits you, implicitly predicting that for the first time in 15 years, trade will grow more slowly than total GDP. <clears throat> and that's of a concern. Trade was once the engine of global growth, but you can see it is not today. And I think one of the problems here is that the leadership in the uh, industrial world, I would say here in the United States, Western Europe, have really not sold the population on the value of trade. Uh, and I think uh, this has been a big mistake, and it's opened up, uh, you know, the, uh, I think, uh, the voices of the populist, nationalists, and, and, uh, and protectionists. I think it was a major, a major, I think, fault. I worked on NAFTA. I worked on Korea. Uh, you can name all Colombia, all of these. But I think one of the problems was it certainly was not sold in this country to our industrial base, to the workers out there, blue-collar workers and others. 
what this could mean. And uh, uh, they should have been told that there was going to be some dislocation, but there would be some positives. And I don't think we've done the job on that. And I see Tammy Overby is here, and, and that's one of the things the American Chamber of Commerce has done yeoman's work on trying to, uh, on trying to educate in this area. Uh, although uh, I have to say uh, the progress to date has not been great. And, of course, I think all of us who believe in uh, globalization for the good are concerned about the beggar-thy-neighbor policies of the 1930s. So I think uh, the idea that fair trade, and, and, and I think when we use the term free trade, I think we ought to use the term fair trade, which means if there is an agreement and a country breaks it, then you will take the necessary steps in retaliation. Uh, and so there's got to be an equanimity in, in how these, these agreements are implemented. And I think, again, the leadership's done a poor job in, uh, in, in really educating and, and moving uh, on implementing the other side of this to pr protect workers. Uh, in France, you have the national front. You have uh, a situation with Brexit. And protectionist, I think, uh, rhetoric and uh, feelings are advancing, I think, very strongly uh, in Europe. They've been working on an agreement with Canada. This is not working with a developed country and a developing country. These, uh, this is the EU working with a, an advanced economy. They've been working on it for seven years. It should have been a slam dunk, unlike some of the agreements we've had to negotiate with developing countries around the world, and they can't get it done. They keep moving the date. The latest is they're going to try and get one last go at it on, uh, on Thursday. And then you take a look at, at uh, uh, the thoughts about TTPP, the Trans-Pacific, you know, the, uh, the Atlant Transatlantic Trade Pact. And if they can't get the pact with, with Canada through, forget about doing anything on a Transatlantic Trade Pact. And as we all know, President Obama has said that, that he, one way or the other, is going to get approval for the Trans-Pacific Partnership uh, through the lame duck Congress. Based on what I've been told and heard, I doubt that he'll be able to do it. And this is going to raise real questions about the reliability in Asia of the United States, the so-called pivot to Asia. Lastly, I'd just like to say a few words about the financial system and public confidence in the banking system. I think coming out of the Great Recession, it was very low, and correctly so. Uh, the bad image and trust of the public uh, you know, of the banking system was a real problem. And lo and behold, it pops up again with Wells Fargo. And uh, then we have in Europe the question of, of the Deutsche Bank, which has similar problems with this. They're waiting to find out what their fine's going to be from the Justice Department and other uh, misdeeds. And so uh, the banking system is, is, is a necessary tool of intermediation for growth and investment. But I have to say, I put the onus on the bankers. And I've said so in, in, in my book uh, and in numerous articles I've written, some of which are out there. But in, I would say that a lot of this is being exacerbated by the search for yield and short-term profit maximization. Working with a group of 30, which I co-chaired a, a report called Banking, Conduct, and Culture. You can, uh, you can get this online. Uh, and I'll be going to, uh, in, in the next few weeks, I'll be going to Japan and, uh, <clears throat> and China to be talking ab about this is a need for a reset in the area of, of conduct and culture at the most important banks. A number of banks have made a lot of progress. We have the Wells situation where obviously uh, if they read my report, they certainly didn't execute on it very well. And uh, I think that the baseline is here, the most important thing an institution has and particularly a financial institution, is its reputation. Once a reputation is gone, it's very difficult in effort, uh, or ever to regain it. And that is, I think, the challenge uh, that, that is out there. And so, uh, and this is not just a banking situation. A lot of the major multinationals have lost the trust of the public, too. And what I would just say here, uh, the integrity of an institution, its culture, has got to be provided by the board of directors and the CEO. It's got to go through middle management down to the teller. And the, the, the public has got to feel this, to see it, and to trust. And this is where I think there's a lot to be done. You start off with people who don't do that, you take their compensation away. You hit that. If they still don't do it, you fire them. 
And uh, I think that uh, one of the ways uh, that this can be implemented better is if you have more importance given to whistleblowing at an institution, not just to say you have a program, but really to implement it. So just to sum up some of the things I'm saying here, I think that uh, we need to see uh, this reform implemented on a continuous basis by the financial system and, and, and banks. And uh, we also need to do a better job on the trade side of selling what trade can do. And there are a lot of institutions hanging around, like the Group of Seven and the Group of Twenty. I can name all sorts of them, GATT and everything else, that have been put together to try and bring the world closer together and to, uh, and to talk about interchange and trade and fair trade. But we have been living an economic boom with some busts along the way ever since World War II. And this international system, I think, is at risk today. And what we need to do is the public sector has got to be more active in leadership, but the private sector also has to. It's got to be something that they work together. Because otherwise, I'm concerned that all of this progress we've made since the end of World War II and taken in many countries, countries hundreds of millions of people out of poverty and certainly advanced uh, the economies of the developed world could fall could fall through. And certainly we don't want to get into a period like the 1930s. So I think this should be a profound uh, concern uh, to all of us. And certainly I think this is one of the major challenges that the new president of the United States is going to face, whoever that might be, and the new Congress. But not only here, this is what's facing the leadership in Europe, in Japan, and I've already gone over my, my thoughts on, on China, and I'd be happy, as I said, to answer any questions on any of the subjects that I spoke about, or if any of you want to ask me something on one of the emerging market country, uh, countries, I'd be happy to try and answer you. So, thank you. As Bill said, he's, he's willing to take some, some questions, so um, let me just ask, uh, do you raise your hand, wait for the microphone so everybody can hear, uh, please identify yourself, uh, and uh, please ask a question. Thank you. Start off, sir. Uh, I'm Chong Huang, Cato Institute. Uh, I have two questions for you, sir. Um, thank you for your speech. So um, I wanted to start off with a little story about um, 2002, Bush uh, had said he wanted housing for everyone. And I think that was a spur the, the starting of the housing bubble for the 2007-2008 financial crisis. Bernstein's was the like signal, like the start of the financial crisis. So um, right now we have Wells Fargo, uh, but it started from the LA Times uh, uh, news article, not like CFPB or OCC doing their regulations. So um, domestically in the US, I think that regulations, like regulatory board bodies are not doing their, their work. So uh, do you think that, as you said, public needs to do more active roles? Is this um, a statement that could work on these cases? And going on to China, um, China right now is uh, showing a lot of bubble in their industrial side because they had this uh, policy of subsidizing uh, industry coal, steel, uh, based on guanxi, what we call government friends. So most of the companies that are receiving subsidies are related to the government. So also I think this is an issue that we see with public uh, mixing uh, badly with the private sector. So what do you think about these issues? Because if one of these zombie companies blows up, that could be another trigger for another financial crisis. So um, regarding these issues, I, I, I'm questioning your thoughts. Thank you. Okay, well, you, you put a lot on the table there. I think that <clears throat> the origins of the subprime are many. I think uh, you have some right here in Washington with Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Uh, I think uh, it was this tremendous search and reach for yield. I think uh, lack of, of, uh, of risk discipline. Uh, and of course, uh, the idea that uh, uh, short-term uh, gains both for the bank and the institution and for the individual uh, drove this. And uh, you know, a lot of things have been done since then, although Freddie Mac and, and, uh, uh, and uh, and Fannie Mae have not been resolved here. A lot have been talked about it, but you have Dodd-Frank. 
And there's some good aspects of Dodd-Frank. There are others uh, where I think you've just piled on a regulation that might not be necessary. But I think the idea of the regulators here in the United States, particularly the Fed, to make banks increase capital, uh, to be more cautious and, and risk, write off bad loans is the proper thing to do. But really, at the end of the day, the regulators <clears throat> cannot make this happen. It's got to be the culture and the institution itself. When I started off as a young trainee, I don't want to tell you how long ago that was in the old city bank before what I call our infamous merger with, with travelers when we, we had city, was I was told two things. I said, number one, the most important uh, point you have to think about is the reputation of this institution. And second of all, uh, you must uh, be able and willing to look after your clients in an honest and straightforward way. I'll tell you, somewhere along the way, those two, those two principles were lost at, at a number of financial institutions, and that's why the public lost trust. So it's not just the job of the regulators to regulate. It really has to start with the individual institution and with the board of directors, the CEO, right down. And if they don't, I think the patience, uh, uh, you know, with Congress and the public is going to run out. And test case here is, is right on the table uh, is Wells Fargo. With regards to, to China, that's one of the reasons I talked about the zombie country, companies and the SOEs. Uh, this is something that was laid out in the China dream uh, and uh, that, that had to be done, uh, that they were going to be, you know, merging, uh, you know, uh, running down these companies, but we haven't really seen it. And I think uh, what you've seen is a borrowing binge, the like of which we've never seen. And people say, okay, but China's got $3 trillion in reserves, but, you know, I've seen reserves dissipate uh, very rapidly. And uh, there was a famous professor uh, at, uh, at MIT who was a friend of both uh, Stan Fisher's and mine named Rudy Dornbush. And he used to say that these crises take forever to build up, but when they hit, they're gone sort of in a nanosecond. That's paraphrasing him. And boy, he's, he, this has been proven true again and again. So I think China has got to start moving on these things, but I don't see much incentive until we get through the 19th Party Congress. But uh, this is a real problem because China's been carrying a lot of countries on their back with this tremendous growth. And so anything that happens in China uh, is going to affect the world. Uh, the two countries that really impact the world the most, not only politically, uh, but also very most importantly economically are the United States and China. So what happens in China is very important, uh, I think, to all of us here in the United States and to the world. Thank you for your, your questions. Sure. Hi, Robert Shredda. I'm with uh, President of International Investor. First, I'd like to compliment you because I know during your stewardship of Citibank and Citigroup, it was doing much better at that time. But you also saw two trends developing during that era. One was outside of the traditional banking. We're seeing more and more capital in shadow banking. Hedge funds, although they haven't performed very well, continue to gather assets. Private, sec private equity has grown from a few hundred billion to many trillions of dollars. So a lot is happening outside of the regulated banking industry. But let me throw one other quick question in. Inside of banking, they started to realize that's where the money was. I can make more lending on short term at a higher interest rate to a hedge fund than I can to lending to something in the traditional economy, mortgages or, or small businesses. So does something still need to be done internally in banks to change the commission structure so that we see m more focus on the real economy instead of just financing the speculation that still goes on? Well, first of all, to tackle shadow banking, I think it is a real problem. A group of 30 is coming out with a report in a few weeks talking about it worldwide, and there's a special part on China. But it's very important here in the United States. And as you point out, a lot of that's escaped the regulatory, uh, you know, over, overview that it should have. 
And I think it is a concern, and the Volcker Alliance, of which I'm on the board, headed by Paul Volcker, is coming out with a study uh, after the elections, uh, pinpointing some of the very points you mentioned and, and putting up uh, warning signs. So I think it is something to be concerned about, because uh, if you can ex escape the regulatory net in some way or other, uh, then, uh, you know, you have a lot of these uh, concerns that you mentioned can, can pop up. I mean, you, you have some of these things happen in Lending Club out on, uh, you know, the West Coast. And <clears throat> with regards to bank themselves, you have this whole question of cross-selling, which is a big issue with Wells Fargo, as to uh, trying to get ahead of the game to compete with shadow banking and stuff and to make sure that that is under control and uh, you, you, you have the most ethical standards. I think it's a real concern. Uh, and as I said, I think the Fed did a very good job principally and the other regulators, but potentially with the Fed, of trying to, to learn from the mistakes of the Great Recession. But one of the things that has to be worked on is shadow banking. In this country and worldwide, in, in, it's also, you have it to an extent in Europe, but not, not anywhere near what you have here or in China. And in China, it is a real clear and present danger because it is not regulated. Uh, so I think it's a very, very, very important point. I think it's one of the challenges uh, for the financial community and the regulatory community, uh, community going forward. I really do. Sure. Thank you. Thank you. My name is Yaya Fanusi. I'm with the United States of Africa 2017 Project Task Force. From your statement, I know you've done a lot of work in Africa. I want you to do a what-if simulation with your staff. The 54 countries are coming together in the Federation 2030. One president, one currency, not European Union like America. I want you to do a what-if simulation for all the industries that you recognize about that and also develop appropriate algorithms, what that will mean. Then call us. We're raising $5 billion to get it done. <laughs> well, I think people tend to forget that uh, Africa is there at times. And Africa has such tremendous p potential. Not only people tend to think of, of raw materials, but actually the biggest resources are people of Africa themselves. And there have been various efforts, you know, the uh, Southern African Confederation, uh, to try and get them to work closer together. Uh, Mandela tried to do that. Um, I was on Thabo Mbeke, his successor's international advisory group, and we talked a lot about that. Uh, but not enough progress has been made. Uh, and I think the African Union hasn't always done what they needed to do there, but I think there, there should be more potential there. And I think one of the things is that the private sector uh, really, there has to be more emphasis on the private sector, particularly entrepreneurship, instead of just you know, relying on the big corporations. Uh, as you know, China has entered... Uh, over the last decade has entered big time into, into Africa. And there are a lot of questions about, uh, you know, how much good is coming from these investments? Is this just a replay of 19th century European colonialism, or is it something new? And you could spend hours talking about it. But I think that looking forward, the opportunities, I think, in Africa are tremendous. Uh, and particularly, I think, in the entrepreneurial area. Uh, and, and then that's where I think the emphasis needs to, to be. And, of course, obviously you know, because you know Africa so well, the problems of corruption that are, uh, you know, so endemic in some of these countries. So I think those are all real challenges. But, I mean, you know, Africa will come through, but you need more emphasis on the private sector and less on the public sector. But thank you for your question. Thank you for bringing up Africa. You mentioned infrastructure in your um, remarks, and there's a lot. There's McKinsey did a study that said there's 120 trillion dollars in private capital out there that could be brought to bear in, in some of the infrastructure issues the United States is is having in funding. What are some, from the bankier perspective, what are some um, incentives that could be brought to bear, either regulatory or otherwise, that would um, infuse some of that capital and make it more appealing to, to the world financial community? to invest in those sorts of projects? That's not only the $64 billion question, mm -hmm. like the $64 trillion question, because it's not just the United States. It's, uh, you also see it in Europe. 
And it's fine for all of us to say you need to spend more money on infrastructure. But you saw what happened after the Great Recession. A lot of money was approved by Congress, and not all of it was properly used. The private sector has to play a lead role in here. And um, uh, there needs to be some sort of partnership between government, be it uh, state governments or federal government and the private sector, uh, as an engine of growth. And the how you put together put that together is going to be a challenge for the next president because both of these candidates have talked a lot about infrastructure. What I haven't seen from either one of them is how they want to implement that. But you have to have a role that encompasses all of them. And the last time we had some real infrastructure booms, one was before my time, which was under Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and most of that was driven by the government. Uh, under Dwight D. Eisenhower, we had a tremendous program in, of which a lot of our highways were built. Uh, and it was a combination of, of, of states, federal, and the private sector, and that's what we kind of need to do. And this is going to be, one, as I said, one of the real challenges of the next president and the next Congress, because they all talk a lot about infrastructure spending, but I haven't seen much of it. And where it has come, <clears throat> it's not always been done properly. And that's why I think you need the private sector that's deeply involved. I don't want to get into carried interest or how much money some of the corporations in the United States are overseas. But wouldn't it be great if we had a system to entice this money to come back from uh, low uh, taxing areas to bring that back to the United States for infrastructure? And, uh, you know, that's sort of the great hope. But you've got to be specific on, on how you, uh, you get this money back and how it's going to be channeled, what the tax treatment's going to be, et cetera. But it's got to be a challenge, and I have to say uh, the last administration and uh, Congress haven't done a great job in this regard. And if we're going to get out of this 2% syndrome, I think, in this country, forget about anything to do with Europe or any other part of the world, we need to see that. There's no doubt about it. I'm waiting anxiously to see what they're going to come up with. So, question over here. Hi, hello. I'm one of the lawyers from the public sector. I was just wondering, um, what is your view on um, the cryptocurrency or virtual currency like Bitcoin? Like, do you envisage like in t five years, ten years, is it going to replace banking system, or do you feel like it's going to go away soon? And you know, as a public sector. What kind of a mechanism or regulations um, should be put in place right now is in state to state policy, but do you feel like you know it should be federal government um, policy? Thank you. Again, a very good question because there are all sorts of books and studies being put out uh, about a cashless society, and uh, whether Bitcoin or some other form in the sense of transfer. And it's coming. The question is PayPal. Is, I mean, I could name all sorts of uh, possibilities. And as I said, some leading economists have, have written uh, extensively on this. But uh, And it's coming. The question is when and is it going to come in an orderly fashion? And so there's no doubt about it. We're moving towards there. Uh, and uh, the question is when and, and how. But it's a real challenge. I mean, you know, there, there are some... Hit, uh, uh, professors of economics who think that we passed, you know, the great advances in the 19th century, uh, the electric light, the car, the airplane, all this, uh, and that we've kind of slowed down on, on technological innovation. I don't agree with that. And one of the big challenges is, is really going to be that, uh, you know, going forward as to how that works out. And that brings in a whole host of things. And how is that going to be regulated? Uh, in individual countries, um, you know, where does the banking system fit in that? It's a real challenge, but it's coming. The question is, does it come in an orderly fashion or does it come in a disorderly fashion? But it's no doubt it's coming. Yes, sir. Dan Lieberman, uh, you haven't met, mentioned Brexit. Is uh, Brexit a risk the global financial system? I did. I mentioned it twice, briefly. And I think what Brexit, well, I mentioned it in my remarks <clears throat> about the challenge not only to the UK but to, to Europe because uh, the UK was a, a real building block of the EU. It never joined. Gordon Brown decided he didn't want, I think, correctly to get into the Eurozone. But uh, I think it's, uh, <clears throat> among other prime ministers, 
but I think that uh, it was so linked in uh, the UK with, uh, with the rest of the EU. It was a stalwart on foreign policy, military, uh, London, along with New York, are the two financial centers of the world. And so I think it's a real challenge for the EU going forward, that and immigration, as to how they handle Brexit, how they handle immigration, and, and how uh, the UK decides it's going to uh, handle it. Because as you know, you have a first minister of the Scottish National Party in Scotland who says, now, you better be careful because if you go too much of a hard, uh, you know, Brexit hard landing, we may decide to have another referendum and we think we can win this one. Uh, and uh, Theresa May, the new prime minister, is having meetings as we talk here with the, uh, the senior ministers uh, of, uh, <clears throat> of uh, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland to discuss some of, these, uh, some of these problems. I think it's a real challenge. I think people were caught flat-footed, and this was another case where uh, I think the proponents of staying in the EU made a lousy case, and they let Boris Johnson travel the country and they were so sure of themselves because the polls were showing between 60 and 66 percent in favor of staying. Uh, and he peddled the idea of the problems with immigration, et cetera, et cetera, the bureaucracy in Brussels. And I think that uh, it's going to be a real challenge how this is done. They say they're going to, uh, they're going to implement Article 50, which gives a two-year uh, period to negotiate in March. Theresa May, the prime minister, did. Uh, and one of the real... Uh, real challenge is how are they going to preserve London as a financial center? Uh, and uh, so it's a real challenge. But people ought to understand that Brexit is not just a challenge uh, for the UK. It's a challenge for all of Europe, without a doubt. And it feeds on all these things I'm talking about, you know, protectionism, nationalism, populism. Uh, and, and one needs to watch that very carefully, how that's handled. Hello, my name is Pedro, I'm from Cato Institute, and my question is about uh, what is your perspective of um, the few years in of economic development in Latin America, because you see some governments such as Argentina and Brazil uh, going towards uh, more liberty, globalization, and uh, private sector, and uh, in parallel, you see Venezuela or Bolivia with more state intervention, protectionism, and I can say even authoritarianism. So what is our perspective? Well, I think uh, like most emerging market areas, you've got to take case by case, country by country. But I think a lot of positive things are happening, uh, sort of rolling back what's known as the red or the pink revolutions that took place. Uh, you know, with very populist uh, governments to the left. And I think the, uh, the election of Macri is a good example of that coming after the Kirchners in Argentina. Uh, it's not going to be an easy process, but I think uh, they were able to, to, to start moving the economy along vis-a-vis -vis the exchange rate, settling their debt problems, and there's a lot of interest in investment. Uh, as you know, you have two trading blocks in Latin America. One is Mercosur. Uh, where Argentina and, uh, and Brazil are the principals. And then you have the Pacific Alliance, uh, which is, you know, Chile, uh, uh, Peru, uh, Colombia, and Mexico. And I, I've always been one uh, going way, way back to think that, uh, that they have to get together. And some going forward, I used to write a lot about it under George Bush I's administration on the Latin American free trade area. Uh, and I think what you're going to see, though, with the election of Pedro Pablo Kuczynski, whoever follows uh, uh, Bachelet in Chile, uh, I think Colombia, uh, whether they resolve FARC or not, I think they are very much embedded in this. And I think Macri wants to join that. And I think you're going to see uh, Brazil, and we have an expert on that, the former minister of finance here, Joaquin Levy, who knows more about this than I do. But the whole idea is to join those together in a trading block, which basically wants to emphasize the private sector to reduce the role of the state, to clean up corruption, etc. And I think I'm an optimist to think it will happen. Now, Venezuela is a special situation, uh, particularly for me, 
because I lived there in two periods, Dos Etapas, for 13 years. My daughter was born there, who's sitting here with me. And I think what's happened to Venezuela is one of the most unfortunate chapters in modern, uh, I think, modern Latin American history. And it can't go on like it is, as you know, because you obviously follow this. They got by uh, the PDVSA loan rollover, although they say it's a success. They only, they only got about 40% of the, uh, of, the, uh, of, the, of the owners of the paper to roll over. And they have the Citgo refinery sitting here in the south, and they have to be very careful because they could, in fact, ConocoPhillips is already moving against it. So it's not clear to me how long the situation can exist as it does because uh, what's happening is the government is taking money that should be in hospitals, uh, providing food and security to pay, to pay off the bankers, so to speak. And that never has a positive ending, I can tell you. Uh, and so now the Pope has decided to intervene. Uh, well, let's, let's hope Pope Francis can do something. But that situation can't go on for much longer because their production is falling. They're not, renov they're not renewing the facilities there. The Chinese are getting fed up. I warned the Chinese when they went in there that they better watch it, and they're getting fed up with, with what's going on in Venezuela, too. So uh, I would say that that would be the flashpoint in Latin America, but I don't think this can go on as it is. Uh, and uh, what the end will be, God only knows. But I, I feel for the people of Venezuela deeply for, for what's happening there. But I'm optimistic on the other cases that I, that I mentioned uh, you. Where are you from? Okay. All right. Well, uh, I think that Brazil's going through a difficult period of time, but, you know, the old saying is God is a Brazilian, and I like to say sometimes he takes vacations. <laughs> but I, the, Brazil has the strongest private sector in all of Latin America, and I'm an optimist on Brazil. I think they'll work their way out of it, uh, and it may take some time, but I think, uh, I think they will. So. Last question? Yes, sir. Thank you for an excellent presentation, sir. You made me wish that I would have stayed awake during my economics classes when I was an undergraduate. I wish you said that when Stan, before Stan Fisher left, <laughs> because he's one of the great professors of economics. Uh, I thought it was boring at the time, but it's becoming much more interesting to me. So I represent an organization called the Economic Warfare Institute. So my question's a rather dark one. What do you see in terms of future threats to the financial system of, of the world, actually, but especially the four, four regions you mentioned, uh, its ability to sustain attacks. Um, and I'm not, cyber is just the platform, but this, this trying to undermine um, the confidence, to undermine citizens' confidence in the system, um, the private sector bank, banking establishments, the financial sector doesn't seem to be very capable of joining with each other to try to defend themselves, and I just see this as a pretty dark future. I think it's a real challenge. It's a dangerous one. I mean, all we got to see is all the hacking being done, because you got to remember Mr. Putin, uh, when he was a lieutenant colonel of the KGB, this was especially the area of his, of his disinformation and working on this. And I think that uh, cyber hacking is a real problem. It's a problem also with China. And I think what we haven't seen enough of in this country is a private sector working with government. Uh, they need to work among them with themselves, but they need to work with government. That's the only way to face it, because what you're what you're facing is uh, a monolithic approach in China, a monolithic approach in in Russia and elsewhere. And if we need to be reminded of that, what we need to see is the daily now almost release of these uh, uh, emails that they've hacked into. Uh, in this election. And of course, one of the concerns is that they're just waiting for the best to see after the election's over and then to cause a real embarrassment. But I think it's, uh, you know, it's a real challenge and I don't think we've done enough here. And I think, again, uh, it's got to be the private and public sector working together on this. Uh, and that hasn't gone too well, as you know, so far. The problems with Apple and, the, you know, the iPhone and uh, situations like that on what happened out in California. And, and you've got to have, you've got to respect the freedom of the individual, but also we have to prepare ourselves uh, for this new age that we're in, uh, cyber tax, because it's not just you can bring down the financial system, you can bring down the electrical grid system. 
uh, not to speak of all sorts of other things that can be brought down. That re and I was reminded of that. Uh, and of course, LaGuardia probably is the worst airport in the world, at least in the United States. I wouldn't say in the world. And I didn't know if I was going to make it down here because the electrical system went out on part of LaGuardia on uh, a beautiful day like this. And you're sitting there waiting, but it just reminds one uh, of what cyber can do. And uh, the other major uh, nations of the world are, are working more in unison than we are here. So this, again, is going to be a major challenge of this new president and this new Congress to take this on in a more organized fashion than we've seen today. And just take a look at how ISIS has maneuvered this stuff also. Uh, they've been able to use uh, social media tremendously and, uh, you know, all of it, whether it be social media or cyber, you know, we need to do better to protect this nation and the citizens and the institutions of this nation, I think, than, we're being, than we've, we've done so far. Uh, and let's hope, again, this is a challenge uh, that this new president, whoever it's going to be in this new Congress, uh, will take uh, seriously. But I think it's a fitting way. To end, to end this. <laughs> Let me join me in thanking Mr. Rhodes. Yeah.